Hello, I'm William Bell, um, soul singer, songwriter, Grammy winner, record producer, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Mr. Bell, you started singing really early. I mean, you were in a choir at the age of seven. Can I ask you when you fell in love with singing? I think it was uh, at church at the, about that age of seven that I first really fell in love, in love with, music with music and singing and all of that. Uh, I went to church, my mom was uh, uh, singing in the choir and then I had to be in church on Sunday mornings. And I just uh, developed a, a love for all of the songs and the the presentations that they did in the choir and all of that. What do you think starting with church and being in the choir taught you about singing? Uh, well, singing in the choir, that's one of the best... Uh, I guess, uh, preparations that you can get because it teaches you about expression of a lyric, uh, how to emotionally express it. Um, and then it teaches you just how to feel, as we call it in soul music, you're feeling what you're actually feeling at that moment, at any given moment when you're delivering that song. And uh, so all of that came into play when I started doing secular music. So all of that came from the church. And you started doing secular mu music pretty early. I did. Uh, I started secular music. Uh, I was uh, some friends of mine in, in high school dared me to enter what they call it from Memphis, uh, Mid-South Talent Contests. And of course, uh, I didn't, I wasn't one like to be dared. So I entered the contest and won. What did and, you sing? Do you remember? Um, I sang, because a, 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 I was doing more or less, uh, I sang some stuff then that was like, uh, uh, I think that I shall never see a tree and all of that, all of that the kind of songs from, I was working uh, part-time with Phineas Newborn's orchestra. So I knew I was doing more jazz than R&B then and, and gospel stuff. So I sang uh, uh, the tree song and then I sang another jazz song uh, with uh, the band. And uh, of course the jazz cut was uh, September in the Rain. And uh, of course I won and one of the uh, awards was $500 award and uh, a chance to go to Chicago and work with the Red Saunders band. So I went up for a weekend, worked with that band uh, doing jazz and, 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 and uh, stuff like that. And uh, from that, he called back to Memphis because Phineas Newborn Sr. was a good friend of Red Saunders. 
and the two musicians talked to each other. He said, there's a kid that uh, from your hometown that you should look at. And I was probably about uh, 14 then. That's amazing. Yes. And uh, so, of course, uh, he. Uh, when I got back to Memphis, old man Phineas contacted me, and I started singing on the weekends at the Flamingo Room. Now, I understand that he had to talk to your mom into doing this, right? Yes. <laughs> he had to talk to her because, of course, she was deeply religious, and she didn't really want me in the nightclubs or singing secular music and stuff. They call it the devil's music. So... <laughs> Anyway, but I was hooked at that point. So I talked to her and then uh, uh, old man Phineas talked to her and he had two of his kids in the band, which was uh, Calvin Newman and Phineas Jr., Phineas Newborn Jr., who played piano. And they were in their teens then, but a little older than I, they were like 19 or 20. And um, he told my mom that he would take care of me the same as he would his children. So she finally, after me begging, and she caved in and said, okay, but know this. You can sing on Friday and Saturday nights, but I don't care what time you come in on Saturday morning. I mean, on Sunday morning, you're going to church Sunday morning. So that was one of the things that I had to agree to. <laughs> and that was true. I had to be in church. Sometimes after singing in the club, we didn't close until 2 a.m. And by the time I got home, it was 3. <laughs> and I got a couple hours sleep. And at 7 o'clock, she woke me up to go to church. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. so the, the Mid-South Talent Contest that you won, I mean, that was probably your first milestone. It, it contributed it was, to changing yes. your life, right? Because you also got noticed by Lester Bihari. And did he not offer you a recording contract because of that talent contest? Well, when I started singing for Old Man Phineas's band, um, they wanted us to do secular music and all of the stuff during that era, because this is late 50s, uh, was doo-wop. Right. And so I was a solo singer during the jazz and, 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 and uh, you know, stuff like that. But uh, I formed a vocal group in order to do the doo-wop stuff that uh, the crowds in the clubs wanted to hear on, on the weekends. And so I formed the Del Rios and uh, a, a member of one of the Bahari people heard us singing one night at the club and gave us a contract to uh, sing. So I had to write two tunes. That was my first uh, involvement in songwriting. So Alone on a Rainy Night and uh, I think it was, the other one was Lizzie or something. But I wrote two songs that we recorded as a doo-wop group, the Del Rio with the media records, which was, uh, Les Beharry. Nothing major happened that much, but we did get popularity in the college circuit and traveled uh, between Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, the college circuit, uh, tri-state. 
uh, we traveled doing college gigs with the Phoenix Newborn Orchestra. And uh, so the song was popular with uh, uh, the college kids, but nothing nationally or internationally. If, if we go back to that winning that contest and you traveling to Chicago to play with Red Saunders, can you can you tell me what that was like to actually arrive in Chicago back then as a, a contest winner and to have that opportunity? I my first trip anywhere that far from home, and it was like a bug-eyed little kid <laughs> looking at all of the buildings and the hustle and bustle of a city like Chicago. And but luckily um, somebody picked me up. And, and uh, you know, from there, took me to the hotel. We stayed at the, I think it was the Sutherland Hotel there in Chicago, one of those, because th during that time, you couldn't stay in just any hotel, even in Chicago. It was like you stayed in more or less the black hotels. And uh, so we we stayed at the Sutherland Hotel, but it was great as a, as a young kid because, um, uh, I was introduced to the guy that had uh, booked acts in the lounge at the Sutherland. And I could not go out into the audience, but they would let me come in and sit there and give me a Coke in the, in, in the corner there and sit at a table and listen to some of the acts that they were working in the Sutherland lounge. And I got to hear Lambert Hendricks and Ross, which is a jazz trio. <laughs> I got to hear a couple of jazz acts and stuff that were playing there. And it was just wonderful, bug-eyed. and But it made me realize I had a lot of work to do to learn my craft. Okay, so you're 16, and then you're offered to join uh, Phineas Newborn's big band. And we're talking like a 14-piece. Yeah, 14-piece orchestra. Um I don't, at this point, how much exposure do you have to jazz music and how much do you know the repertoire that you could front a 14-piece uh, jazz band? Well, they we had rehearsals twice a week on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. And uh, they taught me most of the standard. I was doing some standard stuff like at high school sock hops and stuff like that. And and uh, just to raise money for the band uniforms and the football players and stuff. But all of the standard jazz stuff, that was taught to me. And uh, then after the rehearsal, they would bring me over to the piano and sit down and learn how to play and sing half tones, learn what chords that fit that particular song. And then I'd have to go home and practice on it. And uh, so there was a process. It was like going to university, really. <laughs> but uh, they, a lot of the jazz musicians, he had some great jazz musicians at that time in his band. He had Hank Crawford, Charles Lloyd, uh, Red, uh, not Red Prysock, but uh, oh, Fathead Newman. Wow. And so, it, I mean, all of those guys came through uh, old man Phineas's band at the time. I, I can't imagine being 16 and basically kind of learning how to sing jazz and to have a 14-piece backup band. 
Yeah, and then uh, that was just a lot of rehearsals and then I'd practice. And then also we had to do the doo-wop and the secular stuff. So learn all of the Clovers and the Five Royals and Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, all that stuff. So that we, on Friday and Saturday nights, uh, the Flamingo Room had a kind of a young hip crowd, 21 plus age group. And so we had to entertain them with all the latest stuff they heard on the radio. So we did a lot of that too. So, but I, so I got both ways. And then on Sunday, we had what they call a tea dance, but it was a fashion show. So they had a ladies organization that had a fashion show and we played jazz and I, I did a solo project with the big band doing a pretty girl is like a melody uh uh misty <laughs> all of that stuff for the fashion show so at this point you're in your late teens do you know you're going to be a musician and a singer songwriter i didn't have any inkling at that point of being uh, a full-fledged musician i know that i was in love with it um i um but mom wanted me to become the first doctor in the family. So all of my studies in school was in chemistry and, and mathematics and all that stuff to become the first doctor in the family. But I fell in love with music and uh, it was just something about it that just got inside me and, and that was my first love. So, uh, and uh, to the chagrin of my mom and my stepfather at the time, uh, they caved in and let me do it because it was just like that was something that I really wanted to do. But as long as I um, kept uh, my studies up and was in church during the gospel thing, then during the week I could do... Uh, uh, the weekends at the Flamingo, and uh, some weekends we would travel and do college dates and stuff. I know that Sam Cooke was a major influence on you. Oh, yes. And the Soul Stirs. Um, did you ever think about pursuing gospel music as a career? You know, I thought about it uh, for a while, but then uh, as my last year of high school, Sam Cooke went over from gospel to secular with You uh, you Send Me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had followed Sam in the Soulsters career since I was a little kid, you know, and, and uh, not only them, the, the Fairfield Four and the Highway QCs, all of those gospel groups, because I loved the harmonies and the lead singers, all of the stuff that they were doing. Uh, but I, Sam was my hero. Uh, I loved the way he ad-libbed and phrased and all of that stuff. And it was similar to what I was doing in the clubs because coming from the gospel ch church, I had that kind of voice to do all that stuff in the clubs. And uh, when he did uh, You Send Me, I realized then okay, he has switched from gospel and he switched mainly so that he can make a better living and make more money at that. But he was basically doing 
the same type of singing that he was doing in church. So that was the beginning of soul music uh, because we had what you call all that boogie-woogie stuff and the blues and the rockabilly and country music. And then you had uh, rhythm and blues with the, the, from the Atlantic days, Big Joe Turner and people, Ruth Brown, all that group. But soul music was a whole different thing. So that's when uh, Chips Molman from Stax was up to the club one weekend and heard me and the group. And uh, they needed a group to do backup work behind Carla Thomas's Gee Whiz. And Chips asked me if would you come over to Stax and do, it was satellite records then, so come over to satellite records and do some backup singing because I like the way you harmonize. Okay. So they paid us not that much, but I think five dollars a piece or something. But we did the <laughs> they did the backup work behind G Wiz for Carla Thomas. So Jim Stewart at Stax, he and Estelle loved the, the group, and they didn't have a vocal group at the time. Matter of fact, they only had Rufus and Carla and the Marquis at the time, because they didn't even have uh, Booker T and MGs then. <laughs> so, uh, so they asked if we would sign with Stax as a vocal group. So as the Del Rios, we, we have, were free from our concert with media. And uh, so we signed with uh, Stax as the Del Rios. And I think we cut two or three 45 singles with Stax. And then of course, most of the guys in the group with me were older. And this is when we had to draft. They were drafted into the military and that left me and Lewis Williams who went on to form the ovations, Lewis Williams and the ovation. They left me and Lewis doing a duo for, we did it for a couple of months, but he loved the, the, the harmony things. And Chips asked me if I would do a solo project. Wow. So I hadn't thought about it, but I went on tour one summer, that summer with uh, the Phoenix Newborn Orchestra. And we traveled all up into New York, the Catskills and different Connecticut and places doing shows in the resort areas. And when I came back, I ran into Chips again. He said, are you ready to to uh, record something. So I had written a couple of songs, You Don't Miss Your Water being one. And um, I said, well, I've got about four songs written. He said, well, that'll, that'll be a start. Let's come in and cut a couple of 45s records on you. So I, I went in and, and did You Don't Miss Your Water and didn't really expect uh, anything that much to happen. Uh, I said, well, okay, I can always start college and make my mom happy, I'll become a doctor. So, so the, we cut you don't miss your water, I think in November of 61. And it uh, didn't really, it was played in Memphis locally. I um, mean, all the stations and the bars and the juke joints were playing it all up and down Beale Street. So I was still working at the Flamingo Room. And, uh, but I was out of, high school. 
And uh, so I didn't expect that much to happen. So they stopped playing You Don't Miss Your Water right before Christmas of D in December. And they started playing the Christmas music. And I figured that was it. You know, I'm, come January, I'm going to enroll in college and, and, and do all of that. So I was preparing for that. And I uh, had gotten all of the exams and stuff and got, gotten that ready for Lemoyne Orange College. And then I started getting calls from different cities that I had a number one record. Uh, New Orleans being the first city, then Houston, then Dallas. And, the, and they were offering uh, me money to come do concerts. And of course, being going to school and needing being a kid, uh, I said, well, if I make some money, then I can make my college tuition and, and the books and stuff that I need. So, hey, that's great. I didn't realize at the time, you know, that, uh, okay, I didn't start the school right away, even though I had filled out all the papers and stuff. I said, let me run out and do the concerts, make some money. First concert I did was in New Orleans and the promoter down there, a young man named Percy Stovall. I did the first concert in New Orleans for him and he wanted, well, how would you like to do 10 days for me? Wow. That's 10 times the money. So, so and he had a, a, a section of South uh, East USA. It went from Florida all the way over to Houston, Texas, and all of Louisiana and stuff. And that's what he booked. And so he booked 10 dates on me. And each place I played, we got such a great reception. We had number one records. And I was getting to do the promotion with the disc jockey. So the record company was happy. I was making money. I was happy. And the promoters happy because we were drawing good crowds. And I was really, even at a young age, I was still versed in uh, entertainment because I had been doing it for four years at the Flamingo Room. <laughs> so uh, it just worked out. And um, then, of course, uh, I got a call from uh, an agent, Universal Attractions out of New York, wanted me to put a tour together for me. And I'm going to tour, and this is during the summertime. And okay, yeah, I'll take the tour during the summer. So I went to New York. Uh, the first thing I had a week uh, at the Apollo. Wow. Went over well, and uh, they wanted me to hold me over for another week. So they held me over for another week, and then they booked thirty days one-nighters when you had five or six acts on a bus with the band and you traveled all over the country doing uh, concerts, one-nighters. And that's what I did for, because we did it for 30 days and then there was another theater circuit that we did that they booked a lot of stuff. And I was opening acts because I only had one record. <laughs> But I was opening for people like Jackie Wilson, 
who was the one, another one of my heroes, Benny King and all these groups and stuff. And we all be, got to be friends and uh, Jerry Butler and all of us. So I got to know all these guys and we were touring and making great money. I'm saying, okay, I can take care of my whole <laughs> tuition for my whole four years of college with this. And I didn't realize after in, in back at the Apollo with, uh, I think it was Chuck Jackson. And uh, my mom finally caught up with us because we had been doing one-nighters. And um, she caught up with me at the Apollo and called me backstage on the phone and said, you've got a letter here <laughs> from uh, the government. Mm -hmm. And of course I said, well, did you open it? And she said, no. I said, well, open it up and read it to me. And since I didn't start the college, I got drafted. <laughs> I was over 18 then, and I got <laughs> drafted. And with, with, I had another hit record on the charts, and I'm drafted. So I had to, uh, I thought I could go home and get a deferment, but that didn't happen because I was already late in uh, going to the draft board. So when I finally got away from the tour, and flew home and went to the draft board to try to get a, a deferment or something. You know, I, I thought I could get it. And it was it was kind of comical later on because I walked in, I talked to the desk sergeant. I, I told him who I was and that I'm coming in and see if I'm getting a deferment because I got all these, I'm an entertainer. I've got all these dates booked up and stuff. And um, he said, fine, just step right back here in the back. So I thought he was getting ready to talk to me back there. So I walked back into another room and there were about five or six other guys back there. <laughs> and there was another guy there and he said, raise your right hands. And not knowing what was going on, I raised my right hand and took the oath. And so then I, I, called the sergeant. I said, now I want to talk to you about this deferment, you know, because I've got some dates still coming up. <laughs> he said, you're in the military, you're in the army now. <laughs> so I went from there to get my shots. And then the next morning I was in Fort Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> so I went from that and I had to call home and cause I had driven my car down to the draft board. And I had to call home and, and get my uncle to come pick up my car. Uh, I had to call uh, Dolores at Universal Attraction to say, I'm in the army, they drafted me and I can't work the dates. I had about nine months of touring to do and so I lost all of that. Wow, Can if we go back, can I just go back to the point where you got signed by Stax? What did that mean to you back then? I mean, did you think this was going to be your big break and things would change or did you, how did you view that? I, you know, I didn't really think that much of it because I was still thinking about going to college, but I figured, okay, I'm making enough money with this one record that I had cut. And uh, then Stax wanted to do something else. So I flew home, cut some other stuff. Uh, was Booker T and the MGs at that time. They had gotten them together. And uh, any other way and all of that stuff came about. 
And uh, they knew that I was a good writer, so they wanted me to write some songs for some of the other acts that they had. And so at that time, I figured, okay, I'll take a, a year off to do this and then go back to school. But, I, and I, but in the meantime, I did get drafted. But I had, at Stax, I was, uh, had such a good time there with the people at Stax and we were like a family and, and, and they made us all the neighborhood kids and things that came in. They made us feel needed and, and, and at home and, and we're doing something that we loved. We loved music and we found out that we can make a living at it. And it was just wonderful that you're learning a craft and you're learning about the recording industry because I was one of those artists that if I were not on tour, I was in the studio day and night trying to ask questions. What does this button do? How do you mic drums or all of that stuff? I wanted to learn about the recording process even then because I had run into uh, Sam a, a couple of times and he was one for the business even before it was fashionable. A lot of uh, artists now own their own studios and businesses but back then it was unheard of for uh, an artist to have a publishing company or a record company and all that and he taught me uh that the music is in publishing and songwriting and and everything because all of the money comes out of the artist's portion of it and all the kind of stuff that we had a, a long talk about so i became interested in the the business side of the music business. Was he, was he not one of the first artists to actually have his own publishing? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I know Booker finally, after he left, after Stax folded and he went to, he started his own and Steve started his own. But yeah, I was one of the few artists that did, uh, the first five years that I signed with Stax, it was uh, all of the, writers, publishers, and artists thing was all in the, included in the same contract. So you were signed to Stacks. Right. You did, uh, and uh, you didn't get publishing. They had East Memphis owned it and all that. Then uh, when the next five years came about, I was a little more savvy about the business. So, and then I asked, uh, let's renegotiate the contract. I took the publishing out, I took songwriters out, all of that, and established my own publishing company. I did split publishing with East Memphis on some things. Uh, but uh, I did own my own publishing and started my own record label, Peachtree Records. Okay, so you talked about writing songs for other people, and one of the songs that you're known for, one of the many, is Born Under a Bad Sign. Right, which is, which is basically a blues classic, and it has probably one of my favorite lines, which is, "If it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all." I mean, right. can you tell me a little bit about the origins of that song and or how it came about? Yeah, I uh, like I said, I was in. Uh, if I were not on tour, I was always in the studio. Um, I was in there a lot of times when Otis was cutting. I did. Uh, the harmony with him on uh, uh, respect and all that, all that stuff. Um, 
and he and I became good friends. So I was always in the studio because Jim would ask uh, if, if they didn't have enough songs, if I had something that the artists could do, uh, uh, could I write a song for them if they were coming in? So um, <clears throat> that's why I, I was in the studio there. So Albert was in during a session and they recorded three songs on him, but he needed another song. They were, in a session, you usually try to cut four sides during those days. And uh, they didn't have anything. So I, I was in the studio, Jim asked me if I had something that might be good for Albert. And I had been writing this song for myself, but I said, well, I've got one thing that's kind of a bluesy song, but I haven't finished it, but I've got a verse, a bass line, and a chorus. And he said, well, would you sing that for Albert? And so I sang him the first verse and uh, Booker was at the piano. So I, I showed him the bass line. So he expound on it. So that's how we, he and I wrote. Uh, I would chord stuff, but he would put all the embellishments and all of the fancy stuff and arrange it. So anyway, Albert loved the idea because during that time, uh, the signs and the zodiac and all that stuff, this was during almost like the hippie <laughs> season. All that stuff was big then. And Albert loved the idea. And, um, but uh, I don't know if it was widely known that Albert didn't read. And so, uh, Jim said, well, do you have, can you finish the song up so that before Albert leaves tomorrow, he can do it? Talk about pressure. Uh, yeah, pressure. So <laughs> I said, well, I had some ideas in the back of my head because I was going to write it for myself. So like I said, and I knew the melodic structure, but it was a different kind of blues. It wasn't a one, three, five blues changes and stuff. It was a different kind of blues. So I, but I had a basic idea. So I got with Booker, I said, Booker, if we got to do this in the morning for the session for Albert, uh, let's sit here tonight and write. He said, well, why don't we go to my house? I've got a piano in, in, in the den. Let's go in and, and write it and we'll be more comfortable and I'll get the wife to fix something and all that. Okay, fine. So we went to Booker's house, finished the song up. Uh, came back the next day, cut the rhythm track. And so then I'm, I'm teaching Albert the song. So Jim said, uh, well, why don't you just feed him the lines prior to him singing? And that's basically what I did. Uh, and he was such a professional at it. He, you know, um, I'd feed him the line, the, the, the up and coming line, and he would sing it down. And I think we only did maybe two or three takes. And he had gotten it together and knew the song and went right through it. And then of course they had the rhythm section and him and they put uh, his iconic guitar work on it and it just came to life. And then they put horn and stuff on it. And of course, uh, it became a blues standard, but a different one 
that uh, they started writing blues with with different kind of changes to them. And then like, I, I noticed that uh, the guy wrote that song for BB, Thrill is Gone, which is kind of similar to it and all that. But there were quite a few blues things that were a little bit different after that. Did, did you know that, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody ever knows these things, but I mean, it, not too long after Cream actually recorded that song and it's been recorded by a lot of people. I mean, it is definitely a standard it's, oh yeah. I mean it's one of those top blues songs. Did you have any inkling as to what that the significance of that song was when you wrote it? Not really when I wrote it. I I knew it was a good idea and a good song and I included that verse uh I can't read didn't learn how to write because I knew Albert would relate to that. Right. And uh, but I'd had no idea that that song would become like the blue a blues standard. But like you said, Cream cut it. They had a monster hit worldwide on it. Uh, Jimi Hendrix cut it. Uh, uh, Coco Taylor and Buddy Guy and just uh, any number of artists, uh, iconic artists have cut that song. A lot of the European artists, the blues artists and stuff cut it. So they they made a standard blues song out of it. So how weird is that when, you, when you've written a song or you're thinking of writing the song for yourself, you give it to somebody else. As a songwriter, is that something you dream about? Or as an artist, do you think, oh, I don't know if I want to give away the song? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I thought about it with Albert, but Albert and I were close, he and Booker and I, Albert didn't get close to too many people, you know, he was <laughs> kind of standoffish because I don't know if it's because he didn't read or write or something, but he didn't trust too many people. Hmm. But with me and Booker, we just kind of clicked with Albert. We wrote, matter of fact, he asked us to write another song for him. So we wrote uh, Left Hand Woman, Get Right With Me and some other stuff. So. But he he trusted me and Booker totally, and uh, the, we would go up to a, there's a food place called Four Way Grill not too far from Stacks, and we would go up there and eat lunch and stuff together and everything. But he was always just a mountain of a man, but just like a big old pussycat. You know, like, <laughs> we'd laugh and talk. He was he was he was told a lot of jokes too and. And we would have fun just telling jokes and stuff. And uh, I didn't uh, care that much that Albert, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't mind that Albert recorded and had a, a good hit out of it. Because at Stax at that time, though, we uh, were like a family, and we literally wanted every artist at Stax to have a hit record. So that's why we would write for different people and. I wrote for Rufus, wrote for Carla, wrote for Albert, wrote for uh, Ollie and the Nightingales, one of their biggest hits. I know I got a sure thing. So it was just a, a thing you know, that we all wanted everybody to have a hit record. Can you talk about, you mentioned Otis Redding, um, and I know that he was a close friend of yours. I think you were there when he recorded Sitting by the uh, Doctor Bay. Bay, yes, um, and you also wrote a tribute to King when he passed away. Tell me about your your friendship with Otis and and the who Otis Redding was to you. Well, when I went to basic training, my first uh, 
furlough to come home. I went, of course, I was home on furlough, but I was in the studio every day. And Otis came up uh, to stacks from Macon driving for Johnny Jenkins. <laughs> and um, during that session, I was in on the, in, in the studio and Johnny Jenkins didn't have enough songs to do because a couple of his things he had brought with him were not accepted or something, but they wanted something else to cut on him. And they asked if anybody had anything that uh, Johnny could do. And Otis uh, spoke up and said, oh, I got this one little song here. And, and Jim asked him to sing it. So he worked up enough of it. Otis kept everything. He never wrote up the entire song down. He'd write the first line of the first verse, first line of the second <laughs> verse. He kept it up here. The horn lines, the bass lines, all of that stuff. Now he could play a little guitar, and but he kept everything, the song idea up here and uh, in his head. And um, so he said, um, I can I can sing it for him. So he worked it up enough and got on the microphone to sing the song for Jim. And he started singing this song. And uh, all of the, the during that time, we were in this uh, theater uh, room and the air conditioner didn't work all the time. So we would always during a playback we had speakers in the, in the studio portion of it. So we would open the front uh, door there to the door and, and let some air come into the studio. <laughs> so we opened the front of the, the studio door and Otis was, uh, had sung this song, These Arms of Mine. And they were playing it back on the speakers and it was just, everybody was just mesmerized like, wow. And people from the clarity people were sticking their heads in the door. <laughs> Who is that? Who is that? <laughs> so Johnny Jenkins never got these arms of mine. Jim Stewart got a new artist. With Otis <laughs> at the, but Otis and I became good friends because <clears throat> he was new to Memphis and he didn't know the places to eat and places like that. So I would always take him around and up to the four way where that, that grill was where we ate all the time. And, and so we became good friends and started hanging out down there on, on Bill and at the clubs and stuff when, when he was here for two or three days. And we all were staying over there at the Lorraine Motel. So um, we just became good friends. And then when I, I did the hit record and came back from the military. Otis was a big star. And of course, uh, it took me about maybe three months to Rio because I had been overseas for over a year and a half. And I didn't hear anything but surfing music and Hawaiian music and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, so I had to reorient myself into what was happening musically on the, in the States. So I wrote this song and I noticed that uh, Steve and I wrote some things together and two or three, I think David and Isaac and I wrote some things together uh, and they cut some stuff for me, but 
everything that I recorded during that little period after coming out of the military, nothing really clicked for me. So I asked Jim, I said, well, Jim, let me just take some time and more or less listen to the radio and find out musically what's happening now because I'm kind of out of touch. And he agreed and he said, yeah, fine. So uh, I noticed that at, during that time, everybody that was bringing songs to me, uh, they were songs that the other artists had turned down. <laughs> so I'm saying, okay, because when I left to go to, to uh, the military, of course, I was the head top man of the totem pole. So when I came back, I was at the bottom of the totem pole because they had Sam and Dave, they had Otis, they had Carla, they had Rufus. So <laughs> I'm just like at the bottom of the stack and they had Booker T and the MGs. So I wrote Everybody Loves a Winner and Booker and I recorded it. That was my first big record after coming out of the military, but it got me back out to doing uh, live performances and, and concerts and, and then some of those package shows and stuff. So Otis and I did a couple of package show dates and we clicked because we were good friends and I knew the people that he knew in, in Macon, I knew his family and all of that. And so we started touring as a duo package, touring mm -hmm. package that the, the agency kind of put us together and it worked. We would do all of the, the, the auditoriums and stuff like this as a duo package. So we did that for about a, maybe a year, uh, almost a year, maybe a little longer than a year. And sometimes we would uh, ride in the same car, either my car or Otis's car, and we'd write and be creative writing songs. Otis had his old guitar and we'd sit there in the back seat as the driver. We had drivers and valets and they would ride along and we'd ride along and create. And um, so, uh, when he came to Memphis to do uh, Dock of the Bay, he had just come off of uh, having some polyps removed from his vocal cords. And he was a little bit antsy about what he would sound like in recording because the doctor did not want him to express musically in the heart, that hard edge thing right. that he usually did. So he was a little bit anti. So Dock of the Bay was a different kind of song. It was, it was kind of a up-tempo ballad for Otis. And so we went out to get something to eat after he finished it, uh, recording it. And he was just a little bit hesitant. He said, I don't know how that my fans are gonna take that. They used to this driving hard drive thing. And, but to me, when I heard it, it was a different sound for him. And he had been doing uh, ballads, but most of his ballads were strong, powerful vocal ballads. And this was more subdued with a melodic structure on it. And uh, I told him, I said, Otis, this is a great song. I said, plus 
it's got crossover, like crossover into uh, the pop or the what's called category. I say it's got crossover appeal because it's a melodic thing that people can lock into the melody. And yeah, well, thank you, but I don't know. I don't know. So he was kind of apprehensive. That weekend, he had a couple of dates to do. I think one was in either Cleveland or somewhere, but he was saying, well, you can ride on the plane with me because I had a date to do at uh, 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 a theater in Chicago. He said, why don't you just go with me and on Friday and I'll um, while I play my date, and I think it was at Leo's or something, and in, 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 it was in Cleveland somewhere. And uh, he said, why don't you go with me to play my date? And what I'll do is drop you off in Chicago. That way you don't have to try to go through the airport and get a flight and all that. Okay, fine. So that's that was the idea. But at that night, there came a big snowstorm on the East Coast. Chicago was snowed under. So the promoter called me and canceled my date at the, at the uh, theater. So I had to tell Otis, well, no, I'm not going to go with you tomorrow because my date's been canceled. So, okay. So I didn't go with him on, on that fatal weekend. And uh, of course, uh, he played his first date and then they got on the plane to go to uh, Wisconsin. And uh, that's when his plane crashed. So, and wow. a good friend of mine, a DJ friend of mine in Milwaukee called me that Sunday I was home and uh, watching television. And he said, uh, did you hear about Otis? And I'm going, I thought he was going to tell me Otis had a great show or something like that, but he knew both Otis and I, he knew us both. And I said, no, I said, uh, I know his show was probably great. He said, no, Otis's plane just crashed. And the DJ was kind of a guy that joked all the time too. And I remember telling him, uh, don't joke about that, man. I said, uh, don't even go there. I said, just, he said, no, I'm, I'm in the radio station. And at that time they had ticker tapes and it was coming through on the ticker tape, but I'm watching television. I don't see anything on TV for it. So I thought he was joking. And I said, uh, you kidding me? He said, no, I'm reading it off now. It's coming on, on the ticker tape here. And I just hung the phone up on him. I didn't say another word. And I'm staring at the, the TV and I kept thinking, I said, well, Otis is a good swimmer and I knew he could swim well. I said, ah, he'll be all right. And he said he fell in uh, Lake Moana or something. I said, well, uh, he'll, he'll be all right. He, he's a good swimmer. And I kept waiting to hear something on the TV that uh, he's been rescued or something like that. And then, uh, then across the trailer uh, on the bottom of the TV started running across that that his plane had crashed in bad weather and uh, he was missing and all of the little barcades. And uh, 
Otis had heard the barcades for the first time up. I had a club in Memphis called the Tiki Club. And the barcades were my little house band on the weekends, Friday and Saturday. And uh, that's where Otis first heard them. They were playing on the weekend up there and he came up to the club. And then they started working some dates on the road with Otis. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm saying, I just could not believe it. So I got up and got in my car. And to this day, I cannot tell you where I went. I drove, cause it was about 6.30 that evening when that I saw this on the TV scrolling through. And um, I got up, got in my car and I started driving. And I must have driven for like an hour, almost an hour, hour and a half. I wound up in front of Stax Records. All the lights were on and, and people were crying and, and stuff, the people that were there. And they were on the phones trying to find out what was going on and what, what had happened. And, um, but I, I, I realized that now I, I was driving around for an hour and something. I don't remember where I was going. I was that numb. And um, it was just a, the nightmare of a day for me, you know, because we had been spent the whole week there in the studio and stuff. So it was just a, a bad, a bad situation. Wow. And to think that you could have been on that plane as well. I mean, not only I to lose your friend, been, but. And um, I just, uh, just, just to this day, there were two people that, of course, Ben Cawley was on the plane, but he said he unbuckled his seatbelt. And when the plane cracked in, in half, it threw him out in the water. Uh, he was the only one that was survived the plane crash. Uh, James Alexander went on a commercial flight because they had so only had so many seats there or something. So he took a commercial flight. So he he was saved. So the only two barcades was uh, Ben Cawley and and uh, James Alexander that was saved on the flight. Wow. When ta when Stax closed down, because you talk about the family environment and the closeness of the artists and 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 the record company, what what. What did that do to you? It was a, a really a, a bad time for all the artists, especially us, because we had started with stacks. We started with it when it was satellite records and uh, from the ground up. And we just, as kids, as teenagers and young people, we didn't ever think stacks would end. So when it did, it didn't end because we didn't have hit records. It was pseudo-political, pseudo, -political, pseudo uh, all of that. And then a lot of stuff went on uh, with that. Uh, and, and when it closed, when it filed for bankruptcy, we had hit records on the charts. And that was crazy like that. But we didn't think it would uh, end. And a lot of artists lost everything because they didn't have a, a, a business sense of the word, so they just lived from day to day and parted and everything. But thank goodness I had my publishing and I had my record label. I had a production company at that time of my own. And um, 
I was able to survive, so I didn't lose my house, my cars, or, or any physical stuff like that. It was just sad that we had spent all of our youth from, from teenagers into being 30 some years old and 14 years at Stax, and all of a sudden it's gone. And when it left, uh, not in a good way, they tore it down and left just a vacant lot there with bottles, beer bottles and liquor bottles all strong on it. And literally, cause I had moved, Booker wanted a change of scenery. I wanted a change of scenery. I moved to Atlanta because I had my manager at that time lived in Atlanta. Booker moved to LA. And um, when I would drive back there, it was just, you would almost cry just to see that block of stacks that was just a, a vacant lot with and, and nothing on it. And uh, it was a bad time uh, for everybody. Uh, some of the artists that had some business savvy were able to do it. Some signed with different labels that offered money to them. And I just, I stayed at Stax until uh, about six months before the very end, but you can see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, we were in a spiral drop and, uh, and you knew that we couldn't pull out of it. And be because money had been advanced and the way it was, they just uh, systematically put us out of business and then wanted to make a, a, a production company <laughs> out of the record company. And um, Al Bell at the time was heading it up because uh, he had taken over from Jim and he just refused to do it. And I um, stayed there until, like I said, in lieu of my royalties, in lieu of me, two or three other, I think Eddie and two or three other acts in lieu of royalties and everything. We stayed there at the, at the company uh, just so that uh, we could try to keep it afloat. And, uh, but nothing um, since our distributor, uh, to, to give you an example, usually if we had an artist that habitually sold 200,000 records, which is, you know, he, we would initially order 50,000 records to promote and market initially. Uh, rather than order 50,000, they would order 20,000 or 25,000. In other words, they were honoring their contract, but not to where we could survive because we still had to pay back the money that had been borrowed and still try to operate. And when you knew anything about the business end of it, that's what was going on. They just froze us out of business. And uh, I told Jim and Al, it was amicably when, when, when I split, I told him, I said, well, for the sake of my family and my, my personal welfare, I've got to look further, you know, and uh, they understood and, and they, uh, uh, I think I had about 
maybe another year or something on a, on a contractual structure. But they said, fine, you, you're free to go. I'm going to try to move ahead a little bit um, because of time restrictions. I, but I, I was curious about you, you talking about writing songs and not having hits for a little while. And, and you were kind of frustrated. Do you know a hit? I mean, you've written so many great songs. And it's hard for me to imagine that you were frustrated you weren't writing great songs or the songs weren't getting traction. There's a big difference between a good song and a hit song, correct? That is correct. But, you you know, you never know what the public is going to buy. Uh, you try to write honestly and you write about situations and subjects that the ordinary person would uh, come in contact with and not from an introspective thing of your, your own personal life, but observations and stuff that you see happening. And I can't just predict a hit record. I know when a song is good, it tells a good story. The melodic structure is good. The recording of it, the, the arrangement, all of that comes into play. But you can't just predict if it's going to hit because sometimes you can take 15 minutes and write something, put it out there, and it's just timing is everything. The public, this is something that they needed to hear, and it's a hit. But uh, if you write a good song, the lasting aspect of it is there because people will identify with it. They'll hum the melody, whistle the melody, uh, 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 sing the lyric or whatever. It's just like a, a good example of that. Now, when I do concerts, I've got three generations in my, I got the grandkids, the, the parents and the, and, and the grandparents now uh, in my concerts. And I see all three generations singing the lyrics to my songs. Because what you realize, especially when you start traveling and touring and going abroad overseas and everything, uh, people are people the world over. They have the same frustrations, wishes, aspirations. And if you write about life, they can identify with it. So I, I try to do that and write honestly about it. I can take a hypothetical situation, I'll write how I would react as just a normal person, not as a superstar or something like that, as a normal person in that situation, if I were caught into that situation. And usually people can identify and relate to it. Uh, so I know if I write something like that, that people can relate to it. And I'm not writing in parables like they're gonna have to wonder about what does he mean by that line? No, it's, it's cut and dry. The way I express it, that's what it is. You know, it's cut and dry. So I try to write like that and uh, not write for generations. I write about life because each generation expresses the same thing, a different time, but the overall life's thing goes on and it's the same repeated life cycle and uh, 
when you realize that and then you go to different countries and different cultures and you realize, okay, they've got the same things that happened to them. Just, I was talking to, to give you an example, I was in England and I was talking to Tom Jones and he's a, a fan of mine. I'm a big fan of his. And we were talking and, you know, he said, you know, we've got the same kind of upbringing and I'm going, he came out of church. He came out of the coal mines <laughs> in Wales. I didn't have it too easy. I mean, I, you know, I worked for my living. And he said, I started at an early age and I was singing. I like the black music. And I said, I like all kinds of music because I was exposed to country music. Uh, you know, uh, growing up in Memphis, we did backup work behind for the Pepper organization behind uh, the running mill self, uh, 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 all these country acts and stuff. I knew Elvis and I knew, so I'm saying, I, I just love music. A good song is a great song, whether it's country, whether it's pop, whether it's whatever. And I've realized that since my stuff has been cut by so many genres of music, if I write a good song, people will identify with it no matter who you are, no matter what nationality you are, because as a, that human factor, you're feeling the same things and you're going through the same thing. So that's what I do. I write, and I can't tell if it's a hit, but I know within my own self, after listening back from the speakers and different systems, it's a good song. It's a good performance. It's a good production. Now it's up to the public to accept it. But I do know it's a good good song, yeah. So when were you surprised when Billy Idol had a hit with To Be Your Lover from your song? Quite honestly, I was. <laughs> uh, and then the reason for it is that when his record company, they called me and said, we just cut a smash on Billy Idol on one of your songs. And I said, great, because I knew of him. And I said, but which song? <laughs> I forgot to be your lover. Now I'm open-minded as a creator, but I'm saying, how did he hear anything on a soft romantic ballad <laughs> on I Forgot to Be a Lover. This is what I'm thinking in my mind when I'm talking to him on the phone. So I said, would you send me a copy? Would you mind sending me a copy? And uh, they said, oh yeah, we're gonna send you a copy. We're just letting you know you've got a smash on it. Uh, okay. So when I got the copy, I put it on and I listened to it. For his uh, genre of music, it worked, but it was totally different from what <laughs> he took. It. And I love that when an artist can not copy what you do, but they can take your work and make it theirs. Aretha took respect from Otis and made it hers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Billy Idol took I Forgot to Be a Lover and made it to be a lover. 
and and put it in a boxing ring. So it for his gener for his his uh, generation and for his <laughs> genre of music, it worked for him, and it was one of his biggest hits. I, I think it sold like six or seven million copies. So I'm I'm saying that once, and it took me probably four listenings to process what he heard in this soft ballad. And I'm saying, okay. But then I'm thinking commercially now, I'm saying, okay, I see how he worked that. He up-tempoed it and, and it worked. And so finally, after listening about four times, I really got into it. I'm saying, okay, but at first I just, it, it, it puzzled me, how did he hear that? And then right after that, Jaheim did it, you know, on a more of a urban hip hop style. And he had a couple of million sellers on it. So, and his was part rap, part, you know, but you look at that and you say, that idea, that story is still relevant no matter what generation you are, you know? Do you consider yourself more of a songwriter than a performer or do you distinguish the two? Is there one over the other? I think of myself as a performer I, because I cut my eye teeth before I started writing songs. I was a performer. But um, my manager made me acutely aware that you're a creator, you're a songwriter. Not many people can do that, embrace that. So uh, I started thinking of myself, and even though I was writing my own stuff, but still I didn't think of myself as just being a prolific songwriter. I'm writing stuff that I've experienced or that I've observed that other people, and I'm a, a, a people watcher. So I would sit in clubs sometimes in the back of the club and I'd watch people's reactions when they first come through the door and after a couple of drinks or after midnight, <laughs> I'd watch their reactions. And it always was a little bit different in some aspect. And, and I would write about that. But uh, then I had to start looking at myself as, as a creator and a, and, and a, a writer. Uh, but at first, I didn't think of myself basically. I was thinking of myself as a singer, uh, singer uh, uh, performer. Okay, so I'm going to try to wrap this up soon, but I, I do have a few more questions. One okay. is your, your comeback album. And I don't know if you see it as a comeback album, but... Um, the album that you released a, number, a few years ago, which won the Grammy, right? Um, it has a song on it called The Three of Me, which is the opening track, which is a stunning tune. And the, and the concept of there's a man I used to be, there's a man who I am, and the there's a man who I want to be. Want to be, right. Yeah, it's like, it's brilliant. Anyway, um, tell me about, you know, you were, I believe you were the youngest uh, solo artist to be signed by Stax. You released this album in 2016, 2017, and you're now back on Stax, as I believe the first one to be reassigned to Stax. Mm -hmm. um, how did that feel? It felt wonderful because it's like a, a it's full circle. Yeah. 
and I realized, you know, I've had a, a, a great career. I feel very fortunate in having the fans stick by me and having the hits through the years that kept me viable in the industry and stuff and having other artists uh, relate to what I'm writing and, and cutting stuff. And I, I've been very fortunate, but it felt good to be back on Stax uh, after all this time. And they needed something to kind of kick them off in the reissues and all of this stuff. And I'm saying, okay, this is the reason that I'm in the industry is that Jim Stewart left, let me come on some neighborhood, neighborhood kid, come in here and learn a craft. And after almost 70 years, <laughs> I'm still doing it. So it felt really good. And for me to be able to work with another producer, John Leventhal, and he's basically a, a country uh, producer, uh, but he was he had been a fan of mine since he had a little band in high school, he said. So, and it showed because he knew me as an artist. That was the first artist that I had worked with that I felt really comfortable with him and we from the first meeting, we felt comfortable because we didn't try to create. We just picked each other's minds and talked for about two hours. And he made the trip from New York to my studio in Atlanta. And we talked for about two hours and, and uh, he was telling me he knew my discography and all that. And he had been a fan and I was a fan of his father-in-law's and his wife, because he was married to uh, Roseanne, he's married to Roseanne Cash, who's Johnny Cash's daughter. So I said, well, and of course I'm from Memphis and I was a friend with the, <laughs> the Phillipses, you know, over at Sun, uh, Sun Records, where Johnny and Jerry Lee and all those guys, we all knew each other, you know? So I said, this is funny, this is really, after all these years, it's back to square one both ways. I'm I'm working with a, a country producer, first one ever, other than Chips. Chips was working for Stax, but then he started producing Elvis, and then he started producing stuff for his American music label, and he produced everybody there, from Willie Nelson to everybody. But I'm saying it's the music that ties us together, you know, and a good song is a good song. Um, Mark Cohen was a good friend of John Leventhal's and John and I were in the studio one, one day and Mark called the studio and John said, well, I'm here working with William Bell. And he said, oh, let me talk to William. Oh, <laughs> Man, I got an idea. I think it would be a great song for you. Wow. And he said, I don't have anything but a title. Okay, give me the title. That kicks <laughs> off everything. The three of me. 
And I had to think about that for a while. Now, is, is that some schizophrenic guy? Is that some, you know? No, let me put it in perspective from a life perspective, how you've lived your life, you know, and then, and boom. I started talking it over with John and John and everything. So I said, okay. And I told Mark, I said, we're going to work on this. And we worked it up one week, uh, one uh, afternoon with John playing guitar, me singing the whole song. And it was, we liked it so well. We said, well, let's just put the guitar and you down on it. Okay, I'll do that. So we did did vocal and guitar on it. And then I went back to the hotel that night and there were a couple of lines and stuff in there that I didn't like how I had phrased it, but I wanted the lines to pertain to the same situation. So I put my thinking cap on and, and said, okay, I can phrase it this way and mean the same meaning, but it's different. So that's what I did. And we worked on it for about two days. And then we called Mike, to, uh, Mark to listen to it. And he just said, man. <laughs> and that was the first song we worked on. And it's the first song on the album. We knew we had something special then because that song clicked. And when we would sit down to write, it's just like when I was writing with Booker, we, we wrote so much stuff together until I could start on a passage of a, of a melody. And he just played the chord, the, 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 up the chord next to that. And I'm going, okay, yeah, how do you know I was going there? I just felt that. That's the right chord for this song, yeah. So, and John was the same way. So uh, it worked out, we got a, the first Grammy for it. It was, it was the Grammy that kicked off the new stacks, kicked me off. And all of the young people that work at Concord, they were really, they had done their homework. They knew who William Bell was, both past and present and now future. And usually that's unusual because you change labels you got to reinvent yourself to the, the people that's working for that label. But they knew who I was. And uh, that was important to me. And um, it, it just worked out for everybody concerned. And it's been a win-win situation for everybody. Well, it's a stunning album. This is Where I Live is the title of the album. And yes. it's a beautiful album from the very beginning to the very end. So thank you very much for sharing that music. I know you have to go. Um, do you have another album? I'm Are you working, working on, on a project now. Uh, it'll be like a culmination of uh, uh, a thing. I'm, I'm contemplating not retiring from the industry but retiring from touring a lot and, and doing that uh, at my age now, it's like, you know, your mind says yes, but your body says no. <laughs> to ride uh, 200 miles now to get someplace, even if you're on a plane, it's you're a little bit stiff when you get out. So, yes. but I've been fortunate. My health is good. Uh, 
I'm, uh, I, I tell somebody all the time, they always laugh. I say, I can scratch my own itch. <laughs> so, so I'm in good shape. Uh, for, for a person to be 82, I'm in wonderful shape. Uh, and no complaints. I have no, no ax to grind with anybody in the industry or, or anything like that. Uh, and I'm having fun. That's the, that's the key thing. I'm still enjoying what I'm doing. So I don't want to uh, ride this horse until I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I'm having fun, fun with it. And I told my management, I said, uh, I will never, you will never have to roll me in a wheelchair on stage. And you will never, if I can't stand up for an hour and a half and do a concert, I'd rather retire. And I've seen some artists that just keep going and keep going. And they're not as an artist, no matter what they accomplished, uh, in the past, as an artist, they're not able to duplicate that in their later lives. And it's understandable, especially if you play an instrument or even vocally. Mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't had to change any of my keys for any of the songs and all of that. So I feel very blessed. And I, and, and uh, I'm, uh, I will be in the industry probably producing and writing. And I love working with uh, young people letting them uh, fulfill their dreams and aspirations. And uh, I work with the Stax kids, the Berkeley kids, the New York School of Music. And and I don't know if you saw Take Me to the River, that movie we did. Yes. We're working on a new project for Take Me to the River. Uh, it'll be three now, because we did Take Me to the River two in New Orleans musicians. And then we had the first one with Stax. So now we're going to have the trilogy culmination of it for the third one. So I'm working with Martin, the, the uh, uh, director, producer on that, uh, getting that together. So I'm, I'm pretty busy and I've got still got four acts of my own with my label, the, the Wilby Records, and uh, working with them. Uh, I still do some concerts, but uh, sparsely now. Um, well, I got a chance to see you in New York about four years ago, and this is when I first met you, and I told you that I wanted to interview you. So, and 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 that was a wonderful show. I hope I get to see you perform live again. Well, this we're going to do a, a retirement tour. It'll be about maybe two weeks of it. So I will let you know, and uh, that'll be probably latter part of ne next year sometime. Because uh, the thing of it is, um, we want to put it. Put it together to where it can be done with quality and promoted right and the whole thing and and we were going to do it a little bit earlier but the covid of course mm -hmm. uh, kind of put a screeching halt on a lot of stuff so we are gearing back up uh we're going to do another take me to the river and i'm going to do another cd and all of that stuff so that we'll have stuff to go along with that but uh we're just uh, having fun in the industry still having fun mr bell i am so thrilled to do this interview with you thank you so much for taking the time to do this oh my my pleasure and, and thanks for inviting and uh uh we will definitely let you know when uh another uh, that that uh retirement tour is coming up i look forward to it thank you all right bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.